Nick Lucen is the athletic director of Alameda County Deputy Sheriff's Activities League in Northern California. He's also the director of membership for NorCal Premier. Uh, he's got a master's in sports psychology and is a U.S. soccer coach education instructor, previously serving as a director of the Dublin United Soccer League. Uh, also formerly director and coach of San Francisco Elite Academy. He's coached on the collegiate level and also W League Soccer and was a trainer for Positive Coaching Alliance for 11 years. So uh, welcome to Nick Luson. Nick, how are you? Doing well. Good morning, Glenn. Thank you for having me on. You're quite welcome. I, I guess it, it's beneficial during this period of time, the pandemic and, and other things, to uh, put that advanced degree in sports psychology to use. What, what have you seen as some of the you know, biggest psychological issues that, that, that coaches should be aware of? Yeah, I think the thing that we um, we picked up on really early on was just the player psychological welfare side of things. You know, it kind of taps back into those old days of grad school and thinking about counseling skills and, you know, recognizing signs of uh, signs of depression, you know, signs of desocialization and um, demotivation from kids. And so, um, you know, really thinking a lot about how to um, maintain social bonds, you know, and, and team building side of things, as well as um, keeping kids motivated. And then, you know, really the biggest thing that a lot of our staff has focused on since the pandemic hit is um, just trying to be um, some of the safety net and keeping kids safe in our community. Um, we've been very concerned with, you know, just the child welfare side of things, child safety side. Uh, home is not a safe place for everyone, unfortunately. And so we've tried to stay very engaged with the children in our program um, to maintain some good eyes and ears on them and make sure they're doing okay. And where we've had concerns to refer them on um, to, you know, some of the other resources uh, in the county and the community. So. You know, you wrote a, you wrote a column uh, somewhere in the midst of all this for a soccer American. I pulled one thing out of it because, uh, and it relates to, you know, being aware of, of, of the children and the youth, but you, uh, you said you encourage players to take a moment to check in with their peers, uh, challenge them to develop a, a new friendship. Could you elaborate on that a bit? You know, it, it's important to give kids a mission, you know, and it gives, give them something to accomplish. And so, I felt that that, um, that kind of approach, throwing a challenge up for them um, to try and do something that, you know, it'd be, it's, it's hard to make a new friend in the middle, you know, when everybody's socially isolating. Um, and that was kind of back when everything was really, you know, there was no, you know, socially distance. It was literally kind of that stay in your home kind of phase. And, uh, yeah. you know, so we tried to throw that challenge out there to, you know, connect with somebody new. No, Nick Luson, our guest, uh, uh, the athletic director of Alameda County Deputy Sheriff's Activities League. I want to get into that a little bit because of the, uh, the cost-free portion of this. So much discussion about pay-to-play and uh, how, what are the best ways to you know, avoid that in certain cases. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of uh, a description of the structure and how is it that it's cost-free? Our organization takes a kind of a proactive and community development approach to, to police work. Um, we get that question a lot of times of why does a sheriff's office care about soccer? Um, where is the connection in these two things? And the connection is that the community that we serve cares a lot about soccer. And um, our unit, we're part of the crime prevention unit, um, does what's called a community capitals policing strategy. So the idea here is you know, police should be more than just the people that show up, that show up and bust the bad guys. Um, and sure, that's always going to be part of their role. But what can we do to create a community where there's less crime to begin with? Uh, it's healthier, 
more vibrant community with a healthier economy. So the idea is to proactively invest in and support things like natural capital and political capital, social capital, human capital, financial, built, cultural, like these different capitals. So our DSAL is one of the engines that helps do that in our community. Um, about half of what we do is actually on the food side. So we have a number of urban farms. We have an industrial food hub. And all those things have kicked into super high gear since the pandemic hit. We've been um, donating you know, meals every Friday, a massive amount to the community. Uh, we've been growing a lot of food. The urban farming program is actually um, also a, um, a jobs program for people coming out of the jail. Um, so we have a kind of a to, to work on recidivism, um, working with recent release people to come on and get a paycheck. So there's a little bit of that work going on there. They've also started integrating and teaching kids about where their food comes. So they've started a youth program and bringing them onto the farm side. And then our activity side, soccer is, a real, is one of the really big ones, um, a large part because of the demographics of the community. But we also have a fantastic boxing gym. We've got a martial arts program, fitness program. We have a drumline rhythm cadets program. We do some after school recreation. So all of these things are ways to <clears throat> engage with community, connect with the community, kind of bring them together. So, you know, when we have, you know, a thousand people coming and playing in our recreation soccer league, it's great what's happening on the field, but it's actually more important those interactions that are happening off the field of kind of bringing community together. Our funding in part comes from the sheriff's office, but primarily comes from, we have a number of different grants, um, things like crime prevention grants, things like community building grants, creative placemaking grants, that those are the main drivers that support our work financially. So it's all free to our participants but it does cost a decent amount of money. We have a professional staff that are, that are coaching things. Um, our DOC in soccer, Omar is a longtime colleague of mine. You know, Omar Cervantes that I came up together as an A-licensed coach, former club director as well. And we've got a, a staff of, uh, of club soccer coaches that have all been around and qualified guys. So in the, the same story with our boxing and martial arts and, and drums, you know, and all that. So, uh, well, the community aspect here is something that sounds uh, really favorable to the times. Uh, I did some stories in East Harlem in New York and what was very uh, rewarding and satisfying to see was the relationship between the officers of the law and the children in those communities on a first name basis, those sorts of things. And, you know, during these times where we're wondering how we should uh, formulate all these relationships, Relationships, uh, that seems like a real positive approach. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really amazing when you see it in action. Um, you know, you see some of these walls kind of come down between law enforcement and, and the people involved, um, you know, and there's some incredible success stories. Our, our boxing program's got one where, you know, there was a young man that was, you know, struggling in school, um, getting in a little bit of trouble. Um, and this is kind of a classic, like also, you know, police activities lead type of story. And, you know, they brought him into boxing. Lost a bunch of weight, got a little more focused, got back, finished school, um, went on, joined the Sheriff's Academy, um, and recently has graduated, and now he's a sheriff's deputy himself. We have families that, have, when they've kind of joined, have been very um, distrustful of law enforcement because they've come from countries and places in the world where we have the same, we, we obviously have the same problem here in the U.S. still, right? But places where it's even worse, where a very, very large level of distrust and lack of safety with law enforcement through our programming, kind of learning like, hey, you know, some of these guys are really good guys. And just because you're not, uh, you know, you might not be legal or documented doesn't mean you don't have a right to be safe in your community. And that's kind of the approach that our deputies take. Coaching your kid in soccer a little bit is a way to open the door for that relationship and conversation to happen in a more natural way and a more human way. And it humanizes um, both sides. 
Uh, and we feel that it's creating change, not just the community's perception of law enforcement, but the law enforcement perception of how to deal with the community. And both sides need to listen to each other, yes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it builds a more human relationship between both sides. Well, developing trust are the words there that are, are critical to this. Nick Luson, who is the athletic director of DSAL, that's the Deputy Sheriff's Activities League uh, in Northern California. So you've talked a lot about the uh, underserved side of things, those in the community that might not normally be able to afford what has become uh, a rather expensive area of our uh, athletic life, that is joining a soccer club. And you were with a DA club uh, where I'm sure massive fees were uh, expected to be paid. Tell us a little bit about how you serve the community now and what that means to them, both maybe psychologically, but also maybe giving some players a chance to move on to greater things. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting experience. We get a lot of, and rightfully so, we get a lot of skepticism. Um, you know, people are like, well, what, where's the, you know, where's the trick here? Where's the hook? This can't be for free. Um, and it is, um, you know, the, the uniform is free, the program, there, there aren't, you know, we, we even help cover travel costs sometimes. And so what, what happened here is I joined the, I, I joined this program when it was just a recreational soccer program um, with no real agenda or vision of what to do. I just wanted to gain some experience on this side of things that I'd never really um, put my time into. And after a couple of years, it was apparent that the talent pool was fantastic, but they they didn't have a good connection to quality um, programming at the next level. I kind of kept asking kids like, what, you know, I've been, I've been working in the DA the past couple of years and you, you would smash half the kids I'm seeing and you're, you're playing in a recreational league, you know, that's kind of chaotic and they just didn't have the connection wasn't there. The finances weren't there. The travel wasn't there. Like all of these things that kind of weren't, weren't working as well as the scholarship thing. I'm actually a pretty big critic of scholarshiping kids um, from these types of communities to the, to the suburbs. Um, I used to do it and think it was great. Uh, and I've come to realize that if not done really well, it, it can actually be productive to our, to our ecosystem. Um, well, be, be more specific there. What do you mean? Well, I think the dynamic, I think it's a lot of good intentions. Um, so I don't want to demonize my, my colleagues and in our, in our industry for doing this. I think people, you know, when you, when you scholarship kids from low-income communities to medium to high-income communities, it's, it's viewed as we're giving you an opportunity, a, a, you know, a, hand, a helping hand up, that kind of thing. But oftentimes all that's really done is that registration fee is covered. Um, and then the kids just left to themselves and good luck to you. And there's a, there's kind of a social lack of fit that can happen a lot of times. There's a, there's a lack of support for that player. You see some ugly situations where, you know, there's expectations on this family that are higher than the paying families because everybody pretty quickly knows who's on scholarship. That kid can't quite, you know, the, the travel costs, you know, the, they might not have that either. Right. You know, and it's a lot of times it tends to break down. You know, I sometimes raise an eyebrow on how often that scholarship kid also just happens to be that kid that scored 12 goals for you this fall, you know, and should it always right. be based on that kind of thing? Then what what happens with that that's not seen by that kind of bigger suburban club that's scholarshiping kids out of low-income communities is the impacts on the community where oftentimes, like, you know, sometimes some of those kids they pluck out are like linchpin things of those teams. So teams will kind of collapse or fall apart or programs will suffer as they're being picked apart for their talent. And now those kids that are left behind that maybe can't get, can't find transportation into the suburbs, they're left with nowhere to play. Their teams collapse because they did have a very, very good team. And now it's been picked apart by 
you know, the quote unquote big clubs. So we're, we're hoping to reverse that dynamic. We're hoping to, instead of scholarship, Omar and I both used to run clubs in the suburbs and we both used to do this exact thing. And then we saw like, Hey, wait a minute, maybe we're not right here. Um, and maybe this is doing more harm than good. So instead of doing more of that, let's go into one of these communities and invest really heavily here and give a quality program that's here. Um, that's right where you live and it's focused on the kids that live here. It's fascinating. And it's also, I, I got to say, it'll be tough to really ever go back to a pay to play club. The environment is, it's like breathing in different oxygen. Um, the relationship with kids and parents uh, completely transformed. Um, they're not our customers and we're not their we're not, we're not working in customer service. We get to actually right. get the coaches. Right. Um, when you pay money, you, there's expectations. Get me yeah. to the D1 school. Get me to the professional level. You, I read somewhere uh, that one of the forces behind uh, your creation of the uh, DSAL, Deputy Sheriff's Activities League, was your, and this is the quote, disillusionment with youth clubs. Now, you've probably referred to some of it right there. Is there anything else that we should know about your move? Um, you know, part of it was just personal. I know I'd spent a long time working in the club soccer system as a you know, coming up as a coach and then eventually becoming a director. And, um, you know, it's, I met a lot of wonderful people along the way, but unfortunately the dynamics of the situation um, would create just a really, you know, it, it goes, it goes off track. And I think you talk to most directors and the, you know, I mean, there should be a, uh, you know, kind of a, a therapy group for all of us, you know, that have, that have been through it and boards of directors of parent volunteers that suddenly show up and want to tell you what to do with the club and you got to start all over again and fight the same battles all over again. And so it's tough to keep the integrity of things. And it, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a lot of nonprofits that are operating as a business. And I think club soccer has strayed away from the core mission of a nonprofit, which is to serve a community. It's become very dog eat dog and competitive competition's good. You know, I think competition keeps you sharp and prevents you from being complacent. You know, one of our one of our directors at NorCal has a saying that I always really like that his vision of club soccer should be collaboration Monday through Friday, competition Saturday to Sunday. You know, I, I wish that we embrace that more, but I unfortunately see us trending in the other way. Nick Luson, athletic director of uh, DSAL in uh, Northern California, our guest. And uh, when we connected and I asked you to maybe um, – refer to some things that you're you're passionate about and maybe you wanted to discuss you under player development you wrote uh, overly structured and overly professionalized models that's been your experience and and you gave an example of a, a got soccer ranking for one of your teams could you tell that story a bit and what it meant yeah. we had a really good but young team uh, in our club past couple of years, you know, up until, you know, the pandemic hit. And I think most, you know, most of your listeners are probably familiar with got soccer rankings, which um, I personally really struggle with the whole concept of, you know, having yeah, youth, me too. youth ranked in that manner. I don't, yeah. I don't think it's a healthy thing. You know, suddenly we found ourselves with a team that, I mean, I, I, I think they got something up to like, at some point they were like number three in the country and they were a very good team they were not the third best team in the country. Like, I mean, I just, it, it, it's kind of an absurd notion to even, to even begin with. When it started to kind of arise like that, what we started to see is that that, that ranking started to just little by little overshadow the experience of the team. Um, and it was a team that had a really good culture and a really good like sense of community and togetherness. Um, and it was, you know, and they were great and they were, they were, you know, blowing the doors off some really big established clubs and pro team, pro youth teams. And they were out there killing it, but you saw little by little, the pressure mountain, mountain, mount on these, you know, there, there's little 11 year olds. Like this is, this is not good. And it just, I just felt like I'm watching this slow speed train crash happen. I think we've all seen these 
train crashes happen in youth in youth sport, um, but it was a first for me to see it happen because we're winning too much um, and seeing like yeah. the undermining effect and the pressure. And you could just see like the kids and the coach, like they just little by little just stopped enjoying it as much. Um, I, I, at one point, you know, in a very kind of extreme way, tried to advocate for, can we delete our got soccer account and be deranked um, and drop this whole thing? And, and it's like, oh, but now you're not going to get into these tournaments and we want to be able to play that, you know, and it was just, I mean, it, it, that's a tough battle to try and pitch to anybody. Um, that would have been my dream solution. And in retrospect, I probably should have just pushed it. I, I don't love the track that we're on right now, you know, of kind of how professionalized and overly organized the game is becoming. And you just see that kind of getting lower and lower and lower down the ages. Um, and we're, cre- we're doing a great job of creating a lot of really talented, burned out 15 year olds. And a 15 year old shouldn't say the word burnout. Like that's just not a, it's not a good thing. You know, and we're losing our, we're losing a opportunity for late developers and we're, and also I just, I, I hate the, I hate where development is put, you know, like we development is suddenly like, you know, up on a pedestal for us in youth sport. Like it's all about development. Well, what about just the experience? You know, like, is it okay if you never develop as a soccer player, but you just enjoyed the game? And like, what's wrong with that pathway? Um, yeah, positive impact on your life. Uh, yeah, improved social skills, uh, improved uh, how to work with a team, all kinds of great things. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but I do want to ask you this: so, from your group of players, boys, girls, uh, do you uh, is is this a talented uh, area of the country? Uh, are you seeing kids that would never get a chance that could be? U15 youth national team players, that sort of level. I mean, you're, you're a U.S. soccer instructor. You've, you've followed some of that closely as well. And you've yeah. been in the club with the DA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, 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 seen, I've seen those players. I've, you know, had the, I've had the pleasure of working with a couple special players over the years that have gone on. And um, absolutely. I mean, the depth of talent that's in the community we're in is, is massive. And there are a lot of these kids that um, show that potential of being on those pathways. And what but does a kid like that need to do to get to the next level? So what that you see it, but now how do you, do you have to polish them? I mean, what, what, what's the next step for a kid like that? I think, I think for us, it's about, you know, we actually don't want to polish too soon. Um, I, th- I think having kind of those rough edges make you special. How many times did Rivaldo touch the ball with his right foot? You know, like they, they just let him alone. Right. I mean, stuff like that, like if you would have handed him to a, you know, to our overly system structured thing, that he would have been getting yelled at since he was 11 years old to use your right foot and just stuff like that. So I think in part is actually, we're trying to hold some of that at bay for a little bit longer to maintain the motivation till they get to that age where then it really does become about them being the driving force and then they can really take off. Whereas if we push too early, you're going to peak too early and crash. And so it's, we see our role as education, you know, maintaining a quality environment where the kids stay very motivated and very passionate about the game, keep teaching them, but also kind of allow them the space and time. We're really big on, we built our own street soccer courts and we're really big on a lot of unstructured play at those. You know, when we go there, there's not much coaching. Kids can just play. Uh, on Friday nights, we have a, we have a DJ and free music and the lights are on and it's a high school soccer hangout where it's 5v5, winter stays on and like there's no coaching allowed. It's just, it's just a cool, fun environment for kids to go play soccer, get some free pizza, listen to some music and, and hang out. And like, we less, think no less chance of getting, yeah, less chance of getting into trouble as well. Well, yeah. Um, and there's that to it as well. And so, you know, I mean, back to the development question, it's, um, it's maintaining them in those kinds of environments for a little bit longer than what we're seeing in a lot of other places. And then we see that we have a speed limit, you know, like we don't, 
you know, like we feel like for our program, we, we can be very good until like end of middle school, you know, beginning of high school age. And then for the really special players that are actually on that pro pathway, we want to be able to connect them into, you know, some of these clubs that are, you know, that are, that are good at being the finishing school, you know, so we kind of almost look at ourselves as like, okay, we'll be the organic farmers, you be the chef. So you have no issue with that uh, because you understand that uh, for some players, it's going to be uh, an experience that gives them a chance to elevate. Oh, totally. It's a common mistake to try to be everything to everybody. And we're going to, we're going to crash and burn if we try and do that. So now sometimes people are trying to make that jump too early and we caution them of like, look, you're going to, you're going to burn yourself out too soon, but you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And that's okay. And you know, it's always an open hand for people to come back. And sometimes it still works anyways. This was, this was kind of, I used to be like, you know, an outsider, you know, talking about this and now actually going into a, you know, mostly Latino community and just seeing how much of a blank spot that is on kind of the U S soccer radar you know, and there's a lot more of these, you know, in Northern California alone, we've got a number of markets that there's huge talent pools and there's just very little engagement and awareness of what's going on. You know, I, I think back on my college days, of, I don't know if you're familiar with Alianza. Yes. But I remember, you know, I actually went to a, my old roommate used to run events with them and I, you know, went and checked it out one time. And I'm looking around, I'm like, the only college coach that's there. And I'm like, oh my God, these players are amazing. Like, I've been <laughs> yeah. working in the wrong place. You know, I'm going to Surf Cup with like 800 coaches and nobody well, wants well, to go to my little NAIA school. No, um, that's true. That, uh, college, but what was even more disturbing is uh, U.S. soccer scouts weren't there either. MLS scouts weren't there either. They are yeah. now, but they yeah. weren't then. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just stunning, right? Like, and so it's, it's great that they finally started to pick up on that, but that's, that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, I had a guest on uh, who's a friend of mine I used to coach with. Uh, uh, He's a black man that's an assistant coach on the collegiate level. And uh, we were talking during uh, some of the more uh, stressful uh, Black Lives Matter times as they uh, emerge. The thing that he said that was re- really stood out to me is that uh, they have a team uh, with, you know, many suburban uh, white women who, as he put it, may not have ever like lived with a black person before or, you know, that sort of thing where they haven't had that experience. So what I wanted to ask you, I mean, do you have do you have suburban white male and female athletes in your program? And do you see the benefit of how they're mixing and getting along and being teammates with with those from other parts of our society? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's actually quite controversial. Um, the, the, what you bring up, uh, we have. I think our last our account in the spring was like 175 kids in our in our sheriff's FC program. We've got like another like 1,200 1,500 kids in our rec soccer program. But that 175 in our competitive travel program, there were six or seven that were not the profile. Um, they were from the suburbs, some from very affluent suburbs um, with you know that kind of background. There for a variety of reasons brought them to us. Um, Maybe it was the coach where like, hey, you know, I worked with that coach earlier. I want to be able to play for him again. Um, for some, it was the environment where they, they kind of saw like, hey, I don't really like this suburban club soccer pay to play environment. You guys are doing something different. I'm going to go there. Um, some was the level of play. You know? So it was kind of different things, you know, or some it was just a mission of the work. They wanted to they wanted their kids to be involved in something like that. So, so we, the uh, so the controversy is they have money, but they're coming to a place for free. Yes. Yes. And the interesting thing is we've probably had, you know, for every one that we've accepted in our program, there's about five or six others that have been, that have wanted to come that we've kind of said, no, like we, you know, we, we have to be very limited on how many, you know, kids like this we, we allow in. We've joked that like, Hey, we could reverse scholarship these families and charge them whatever. And they'd probably pay it. But we've, we've opted not to do that because we didn't feel like that, that we felt like that would taint the environment, but we came under fire from some of the, you know, particularly one of like the really big or two, 
of the big pay to play clubs that are that are kind of in the suburbs in our in our general area where traditionally these players probably would have gone there instead you know kind of attacking us for doing this and we care. I mean, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a sensitive guy. Like I don't, I don't like people saying bad things about me. And so, you know, like I'm, you know, it's tough for me. to. I, just I say take, take care of your own environment. And if it's, if it's working in a positive way, then families will come to you. They won't, they won't deviate from that. So I've, yeah. I'm with you. I don't know what clubs you're talking about. They might be friends of mine. I don't even know. Nah, but nah, I'm just, all yeah. I'm saying is that it's like, there's, there's no need for that. There's no yeah. Need. And, our, and our take is actually, um, we think diversity should be a two way street. You know, sure. why is it only sure. a, why is it only a good thing when a poor kid of color goes to the rich white suburban school program, right. university, you name it, and you call that diversity. But when it happens in reverse, people, you know, are freaked out by it. So we think it's healthy both ways. Plus the reward good. of plus the reward of, of those communities getting together. I mean, how, how much is an affluent white kid going to be hanging out with the with a Mexican international? Yeah, so we see it as a huge benefit on both sides. And as long as, you know, obviously, we got to keep it at a real small percentage. Um, sure you know, or else we stray away from what our whole funding and our mission is about. We yeah. feel that brings in benefit in, in a healthy environment. We, we stand behind it. We think it's good, but we've we've caught some heat. Uh, Nick Luson, Athletic Director for DSAL, also Director of Membership NorCal Premier Soccer. Because of the, the diversity um, emphasis, you know, within, uh, within your program, uh, you at one point were on the U.S. Soccer Diversity Task Force, if I have that right. And I think there were some slings and arrows thrown that way just because the task force itself wasn't diverse and it's still not that diverse. So that seems to be an issue. I mean, not, but at least you're working in, in a, in a community that, uh, that focuses on diversity. Yeah, this keeps happening to me. Um, you know, I, for, for, for NorCal, I was, uh, I was made the, the chair of our women's committee um, and, you know, kind of immediately, my first action was I kicked all the guys off the committee and brought in women and until, you know, and got them empowered, you know, like basically just handed them the reins as quickly as possible. And now it's run by Aaron Sharp and she is a rock star and is killing it. And, but it was very, you know, it was the running joke for quite a while of like, you know, what's this dude doing running a women's committee? Um, same thing with that diversity task force. Like the upside of that was, it was a very interesting network of people doing some really cool things around the country. And I got to say, it really uh, it helped me inspire, you know, like some of the some of the work we're seeing here at Sheriff's FC, I have to point back to that experience of some of those conference calls and hearing what other people are doing that kind of helped like, okay, there's something to this and really kind of put a little something in the gas tank for this. But I also, you know, from a structural side, it was it was window dressing from the Federation, you know, it got shut down with a kind of felt like a mission accomplished type of type of message. So yeah, I'm sure that, uh, well, hopefully, somebody's regretting that decision, because I think that timing does not play well in history now for the Federation to have done that. Um, and there's certainly a need for it. You know, I, I believe that my role, you know, like I'm a white guy from the Midwest, you know, that grew up middle class, like my role is to be an ally and a supporter, but not the face or voice of, I think it's, you know, we can all do something towards this, regardless of who you are personally. But we also have to be careful of kind of whose voices are, are dominating in the rooms. Uh, I think the Federation should put that back into place. I think it should empower it and actually give it a real, you know, a real mission and real resources. And then it should put the right people in. Uh, and they're there. You just have to, you just got to look harder. Well, well so. said, Nick. I, I wanted to ask you one more thing because uh, coaching licenses within U.S. soccer, uh, we know how uh, it's very expensive. 
Yeah. Um, I think they've uh, taken steps to, you know, improve the overall uh, development of the coaches within these licensed courses. So you're a U.S. soccer instructor. How would you advise someone who simply can't afford it and, and want to educate themselves? Because that's, that's very important. The community you're in and what you're doing, how many communities across the country could use your model and, and help young people out that are, are in these underserved areas. I mean, it's probably countless, and, but you need, coach, you need coaches who are somewhat educated. I mean, you can have parent volunteers, and, and they're going to do as, the best they can, but uh, what are your suggestions there? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like one of my biggest things when I teach a license course is the disclaimer at the beginning that this is not the end-all, be-all. Um, you, you're not going to suddenly, you know, if it's a grassroots course, like this four hours is not going to suddenly make you an expert coach when you walk out of the room. This should be uh, one facet of a much bigger holistic strategy in, in educating and developing coaches. So licensing is just a small piece of that puzzle. We make too much of it quite often, I, I, I fear. You know, I mean, I've seen situations where, well, this coach has got a B license. And it's like, well, yeah, but that guy's got a master's in kinesiology. Like which thing actually took more time and, and effort and, and quality behind it? I think, I think people need to kind of, you know, look beyond um, just the licensing stuff. And there are a lot of ways to educate yourself. And I think the biggest one is apprenticeship. Our society has gotten away from what is a centuries old way of learning things, which is be an apprentice, find mentors, follow them, learn from them. I've tried very hard to do that in various chapters through my life. So as a, you know, as a player, as a coach, as a director, as an administrator, find people smarter than me and, um, listen to them and learn from them and, you know, be humble in that. And so I think same thing for coaching. If you want to be a better coach, um, go volunteer to help somebody that's been doing it a long time. As for the licensing expense part, um, I think it's a problem for sure. And that's where I'm really very proud of what NorCal Premier has done, um, investing heavily um, into licensing courses to make it more accessible, providing free license courses. We have a number of programs and you know, and scholarshiping those and deferring the costs and subsidizing. I think that helps. I'd love to see more of that around the country. And, and there's other places doing it. Indiana does it well, I know, and there's some other spots as well. But, you know, so certainly not, we're certainly not the only ones. Um, and then to your last point, like our model with Sheriff's FC, yeah. we absolutely, one of our hopes and dreams is to see this replicated. And, and it is, like, there are similar type things in other places. We'd love to see more. There's a lot of communities that could really, really use this. Um, we do not want to franchise. Um, I, we're, we have zero interest in being, you know, one of these big, I won't, I won't everybody knows what I'm talking about, but you know, one, we don't want to be one of those. Um, yeah. But we are always open to sharing our ideas, uh, transparent with our whole playbook and helping anybody that's trying to achieve this. Um, I'll always take that phone call, always, you know, provide any sort of advice and input that we can, because that's part of, um, you know, my boss, Hillary, that's part of her vision. You know, she wants to help others also achieve this. It's not just about us. All right. There you have it. Uh, he will welcome uh, your calls, uh, your emails uh, to, to really get the, uh, the, the lowdown on uh, what has been a, a highly successful operation. Nick Luson, Athletic Director of the Alameda County Deputy Sheriff's Activities League in Northern California. Also the director of membership for NorCal Premier Soccer. Nick, it was uh, a learning experience for me. I, I highly appreciate your time today. Wish you all the best. And when we have the ability to travel again one day, hope to meet you face to face. Same here, Glenn. Thank you so much for your time and attention to these topics.